0: Welcome back. In this episode, we continue to examine Shinran's letters. In this episode, we examine a second collection of letters found in the collected works of Shinran. And amongst the topics that these letters touch on are the theme of licensed evil and the justifying of unethical behaviour in the name of the Nembutsu. We also talk more about Shinran's context the texts that he had access to, and aspects of Tendai life during Shinran's time. I hope you enjoy the podcast. But the other thing I was thinking, Dai Mati, is that, you know, this vision that, um, that on the one hand, if you like, you're, you're connected with the, the transcendent, uh, the spiritual right. um, uh, dimension, but at the same time, you're a karmic being. And those two uh, are are true at the same time. Um, It seems to not sit that well with the the basic uh, Buddhist model of of enlightenment. Um, And I've been struggling a little bit with that. Because, I mean, if you look at the Pali Canon, the Pali Canon does not talk in that way, does it, really? Mm. It, It seems to much more have this idea of this ascent towards, well, towards enlightenment, which seems to be just some absolutely spectacular condition that is, well, way, way beyond. I wondered if you thought at all about that, about that um, dissonance.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's true that there's there's very little in the uh, Pali Canon that anticipates uh, the teachings of, of Shinran. And um, actually, actually, it was, Something I was going to to ask you on a more kind of a personal level is, have has all of this study of Shinran had any effect at all on on your practice on 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 what you do?
0: I think it's having quite a big effect actually, and um, yeah, um, particularly in the last week or so. But
1: suddenly, just at the key moment, the screen froze up. <laughs>
0: Uh, so yeah, I, hear what I was saying that it, it's having quite a big effect um, uh, in a number of different ways uh, I'm finding myself quite spontaneously contemplating uh, Amitabha that's one of the things that's been happening and uh, particularly this idea of well the light of Amitabha that just extends in all directions and and uh, feeling that light as blessing you know so feeling somehow that I'm in contact with this higher factor that is blessing me that has nothing to do with whether I've done things right or wrong. Um, uh, so that, that's one aspect of it. Um, that's been quite strong, but I think the other aspect is about this, um, this paradox, I think, uh, between on the one hand, um, being connected with something that is spectacular, the bodhicitta shinjin, whatever um and at the same time feeling yeah very much uh, a mundane being who has mundane desires who who who's who's selfish um who doesn't think of others you know who says not very kind things um and uh there's something about that just that seems deeply true and I, I guess it's troubling me a little bit really it's what is troubling me that i deeply believe this is going to sound odd but i i deeply believe that i cannot gain enlightenment i i do believe that uh, that's how i think and uh, well that seems to kind of fit with how shinran sees things but it doesn't fit with how we normally talk about things but then i guess it raises the whole question of well what you know what would it mean to 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 realize uh enlightenment um uh, and, uh, yeah, I suppose perhaps another way of putting it is that I'm aware that the resources of my mundane will are not sufficient. Um, uh, and so the idea of um, a factor that, that enters or that arises that doesn't seem to belong to me or that is not, is not uh, a fruit of my effort, um, it seems quite compelling. And it also kind of seems like, kind of how it is as well. Um, you know, you could think about other power in many different ways, but one could be just other people. Uh, you know, so like when I was nineteen, I came across the the Lee's Buddhist Center. Uh, mm-hmm. The Lee's Buddhist Center, in a sense, was a reaching out to me. Uh, we could say, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, normally I think uh, obviously the tendency to think about other power is is in a much more you know specific way maybe traditional way in terms of the idea of Amida and his image and so on but it seems to me it's speaking about uh, interconnection and the way in which um, uh, the, the flourishing of our Dharma life uh, depends on others you know it's not just about us and striving and you know being superheroes and and that kind of thing um, so I've been thinking quite a lot about that Aspect the fact that um, that it's not me that's doing it; uh, that my practice is uh, emerges, if you like, uh, uh, by interrelation through interrelation with with others, and, and particularly through their their help and support. And it's so easy to forget that, and and start to fall into a very kind of self-referential form of practice that, that on the one hand, says, "Well, I'm great because I'm doing all of this." uh or um on the one hand just i don't know falls into self-pity but actually there are a lot of people there's a lot of energy if you like that is disposed to help us it seems to me um and that i guess the trick is is some kind of opening up to that that which is it seems to be the more mysterious thing mm-hmm. how about you Yeah,
1: you know, i i've i've found that that um that, I, that i'm doing a lot less of um I guess what we could call sort of formalized meditation. You know, where, where you sort of um, sit, you know, sit down and 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 uh, and um, maybe put on a timer or something, you know, <laughs> something like that. You know, I used to do. I used to be uh, quite assiduous about that, but I I don't. I, I find that I'm doing far less of that and and much more of just um well trying trying to retain a sense of of connection with with the dharma and um and especially when 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 there are those moments i mean i get i get frustrated i get angry and and uh and um that's i you know or or uh i might i might be more receptive to listening to to um people gossiping about other people i mean i really don't like i don't like Hearing that very much, and I and I try not to participate in it. But if I find that I have or I'm I'm in the midst of that, I I try to reconnect. Um, and 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 I f- I find myself several several times during the day doing a, a um uh, kind of practice just to sort of as as a reminder that that's. Yeah. Yeah. That's the basis of things. So it it's had quite a um, quite an influence on on my practice. Maybe maybe to the extent that from somebody looking at me from the outside would just say that I've stopped stopped practicing. <laughs> I, I know it. It's it's it's. Um, I, I think it's an unfortunate aspect of Buddhism in the West that people tend to equate. Practice. You know, if you're a practicing Buddhist, it means that you spend a certain number of minutes or hours every day on a on a cushion, preferably a you know a little round cushion that was made in Japan or looks like it was made in Japan, uh, even though I've never seen any of those in Japan. <laughs> but um, I, I think I, I, I so, something that I used to do quite a lot was, was reflect on each one of the precepts. I mean, I would, I would spend a certain amount of time every day, reflecting on each precept and sort of examining, examining my conduct since, since I'd done it the day before and seeing whether I was, um, whether I'd, I'd kept the precepts, uh, you know, in in, in in letter and spirit, and um, you know that kind of self-reflection is is in some ways useful as a reminder, but it it can also become a little bit um, a little bit obsessive, I think. And um, yeah. and I and I, I find that this approach to dharma really kind of liberates one from from that sort of uh, obsessive. Um, reflection
0: well i think it really liberates you from the anxiety of attainment um right i think and and also liberates you from seeing practice as in order to i I think that's one of the things that has impacted me the last few weeks uh to stop seeing my practice as being for something you know to to get somewhere to serve some for some reason and seeing mm. it more like it's more like my practice just expresses what I want to do, what what, what I'm connected to. You know, it's it, it's it's not, it's kind of um, uh, I actually a, a word that's going through my mind at the moment is surplus. Like practice is sur- is a surplus, not not in, intending to try and justify something, you know, mm. justify your own spirituality, mm. and that to my mind gives it. Uh, it, it makes it more relaxed. And I think it, it kind of makes it less contaminated because I think if if our practice is constantly informed by I'm doing this in order to, mm-hmm. it's really quite ego-directed, you know, um, and quite self-referential. So if I think, okay, I'm going to meditate because I want to cultivate higher mental states and I want to cultivate my higher mental state because I want to get enlightened. And it's kind of loading all of these things onto it um, that, and that are all future oriented as well um, whereas um, the uh, uh, Shinran's perspective I think and again like Dogen seems to very much direct attention to the present um, uh, and the trend the present as being f- uh, full and, and rich rather than lacking um, mm-hmm. uh, as I say I think that, it's another parallel that I see with Dogen. This 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 emphasis on the, on the the deep value of the present moment, and not constantly focusing on the future.
1: Right, right.
0: Because uh, obviously earlier Pure Land models seem to focus a lot on the future, because they're thinking about uh, being born in the Pure Land in the future and your death and so on. And that that, that strikes me could be very very unhealthy, you know, because you're, you're your practice starts to become all about anticipating your future death, um, right. r- rather than actually really being alive right now, and that and that seems to me to to be what Shinran uh, uh, highlights that yeah. if you open up to the vow, you recognize your your birth is assured now, uh, so you don't need to worry about the future. You can just enjoy the 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 truth of that, if you like, in the present, uh, and then your practice then um uh, emerges as a sort of grateful and joyful response to that but 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 not to justify it or not to try and achieve it mm-hmm. yeah i mean I, I do find it very very compelling in some ways although other times i'm reading shinran's stuff and his logic is just so wonky at times you know and, and <laughs> the well there there is no logic and uh at other times he's like the way in which he's sort of uh kind of rereading certain texts in order to give them a certain meaning you you kind of think it is kind of like a bit of a sleight of hand and i wonder how he saw it himself he probably thought it, i imagine for him it was really really genuine but you know he reads one text in the light of another in order to ju- to justify a view that he has about it or he slightly retranslates a word and think things like this um uh, to give it the the meaning that he he wants it to have um but equally in spite of all of that kind of scriptural um work there's something about the vision that just seems really there's something very compelling about it to me um -hmm. it seems to be to have a lot of insight into human nature i guess oh this was the other thing i read quite a long article by um galen amstutz um and he he basically starts off by saying something like um we've still got no idea how to talk about Shin Buddhism uh, Mm -hmm. uh, in in the academic world. That's kind of what he's Mm -hmm. saying. We we haven't yet found the right uh, models to talk about it. And Mm -hmm. he talks a lot about how it's been understood in relation Mm -hmm. to Protestantism uh, and things like that. Uh, But what he Mm -hmm. ends up doing is uh, using the work of Walter Ong. Uh, I don't know if you know Ong. Uh, on orality and literacy. Mm. Uh, So Walter Ong, and I'm really pleased I read this because I read a bit of Ong a few years ago and it attracted my attention and I've obviously forgotten about it. But anyway, Ong says that the advent of writing uh, leads to significantly more complex forms of interiority. Um, So we experience (coughs) ourselves in more complex ways uh, when we live within uh, a literate culture. Mm. Uh, so people who live within oral cultures have a, uh, maybe a more uh, a simpler uh, experience of their interiority. And oh, it's right. to do with the capacity of literacy for abstraction and complex ideas and, uh, and so on and so forth. And so what he argues, he, well, first of all, he argues that Shinran is a hyper-literate person um mm-hmm. and with, which you can kind of that kind of makes sense because what is it is he's doing he's just using loads and loads of texts he's bringing them in relationship to other to each other he's finessing certain words it's a lot of literary activity that he's engaged in um right you know it's not like the buddha who was just uh teaching orally so he says shinran is hyperliterate uh, and one of the consequences of that hyperliteracy is that he's able or he evolves uh, a very sophisticated sense of his own interiority. Uh, and that's basically uh, what Shinran uh, teaches and expresses. So it's got a more complex idea of what it is to be a being, if you like. Because um, mm-hmm. it is quite a complex um, model uh, in the way that we we're saying earlier. In early Buddhism, it's a very simple model. You know, You just progress and you get enlightened. And his idea of being a human being seems a lot more nuanced, a lot more uh, complex. And Amstutz argues as well that Shinran was like massively ahead of his time, like hundreds of years ahead of his time in terms of his level of uh, sophistication in relation to his interiority. And mm. that it actually took hundreds of years before people started to grasp what, Shin was, uh, what Shinran was actually saying. Uh, so it's interesting, isn't it?
1: Yeah.
0: I like this analysis of the the literacy thing Um, and it it kind of started to make me think so. So what does that say about the Buddha, then if the Buddha was not literate? Mm -hmm. um, Does that mean then that in some way, the Buddha's subjectivity or interiority was uh, simpler than ours? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And that uh, it, it almost seems to raise questions about human experience and human, nat- well, not, not exactly human nature, but human experience, because I think we maybe tend to have the idea that human interiority is a constant, if you like, um, and that the way that human beings experience being human has more or less been the same. Um, uh, but as I say, Ong seems to suggest that, uh, that it's not like that.
1: Yeah. Uh- I have never read any any um Aung, but uh, I remember um well I think when when I was at, at McGill University in the Faculty of Religious Studies there were a number of people who were uh influenced by him and and I heard a lot of people talking about his his views and I I remember that one one kind of um um topic of discussion that came up a katavatu, I guess you could say, a katavatu that came up was was that uh, it was a discussion of oral cultures, um, and there were people who were arguing the view that people who are literate or people who write who use writing tend to look at people who are who have an oral culture as as being um, more simple minded or, or or more primitive. Um, and and the counter argument to that was was that there are people who um who memorize you know the history of their tribe it's very common among the pueblo people who right. who don't have
0: written languages yeah i was thinking of the australian aborigines yeah
1: yeah i mean they they they, they can i i i've actually witnessed this at, uh, on ceremonial days there'll be a village you know an elder from uh, a pueblo will come out and 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 talk for 20 minutes nonstop, but it's obvious that that it's a recitation that he's memorized the history of the uh, of the Hamus people, and and part of part of the education of, of, of them is uh, and one one reason that the Hamus people are insistent that their children learn the Toa language before they before they learn how to write, read and write English. They may learn to speak English. I mean, they grow up in bilingual homes, but they, they don't learn to read and write until they have mastered um, their own language and memorized quite a, quite a lot of, the, uh, of, their, of their lore. And, and um, does that make them non-literate people? You know, does it make them less, less sophisticated? my inclination is to think not you know but but it's but it's uh, it it is interesting when you think of the transition of you know within buddhism from essentially an oral <coughs> culture um, the pali canon really the pali language really feels much more like a spoken language than than say classical sanskrit does and um, the uh, the transmission of the canon was going on for of the poly canon was going on for hundreds of years before anyone wrote it down.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it's a, it's a very strong thesis, isn't it? A, a very um, <clears throat> ambitious, I should say, thesis that that Ong is putting forward. And I, yeah, I wonder about it myself as as well, because as you say, does that imply all of these? oral monks were you know were sim- well not simpletons but but relatively uh limited i don't know because i assume they had the capacity not only to remember texts um which they would memorized but then to discuss them because uh obviously some of the well, you mentioned the kata was it um mm. that obviously implies discussion of these issues um i don't know whether that was uh, wh- wh- when that entered, whether whether that was after the period of literacy or, or before, but I mean the Abhidharma, for instance, I think is is a is pre-literate, isn't it? That that they're engaging in Abhidharma practice before writing it down.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think at least some of it.
1: Yeah, and and there's there's a there's a great <clears throat> great deal of discussion, especially in the Pali Abhidharma, <clears throat> a lot of. The reason for that is is to pinpoint the sort of to outline the semantic field of of key words, you know, to, to discern what how many how many meanings there are to a word like dharma, or dhamma, and 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 how and how many words are referring to the same thing and you know, you know, making a distinction between know what what later what Western philosophers eventually called denotation and connotation and things like that i mean they were they were actually working with language in a very sophisticated way and I think that one can do that without without access to writing mm.
0: so you it sounds like you're maybe quite doubtful about uh what Ong might have to say
1: um yeah well I mean i i I, I do think that it that it raises it it raises a uh, a question of what what counts as being literate. Um,
0: yeah. Uh, so there's oral literacy, if you like. Yeah. Or yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. There's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. Um, one was um, I haven't been able to follow up on this yet. Was that I got quite interested in the idea of trying to work out what it what it would have been like uh, in the daily life of a monk when Shinran was on. Mount Ye, Uh, and I've not really seen much that talks about that kind of thing you know there's there's a lot that talks about uh, doctrinal matters or political matters but like things like what was their daily routine what time did they get up in the morning um, what were their duties what did they eat um, all this kind of thing um, interests me uh, to know more about and I haven't really seen anything anywhere that that uh, that talks about that and um, I'd like to find out more.
1: Yeah that, that isn't that is interesting um, that would be interesting to know. Um, w- one thing that I've, I've wondered about the, the, the monks on Mount Ie at the time of, of uh, the in, in the Kamakura period was whether monks went out on um, on begging rounds. Oh. Hmm. Um, because I know that that in Japan now, I mean, which is you know a long time after after the heyday of Mount Hie, was was um, what what's done now is that on certain special occasions, monks will kind of symbolically go out and beg for food. But for the most part, um, those who live those who live in monasteries. 10, well, you know, you know from well, actually, we know from Dogen, don't we? The uh, the instructions to the to the cook, to the chief cook, that the monastery had had a kitchen, and it had a staff of people who prepared prepared meals for the monks.
0: Right. So that could tell me more about Shinran's daily life, at least in terms of the the food. But I was just thinking about things like, you know, in in what condition would his robe have been? What was it made of? Who who washed it, you know? Uh, did he wash it himself or was that something that other people did? Uh, would he have had a, a nice clean new robe or would it have been really grubby and you know, with holes in it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all these kinds of details. Uh, I don't know, it just, just fascinates me to, I guess it's trying to sort of really place someone in there uh, in their daily activity, you know, because um, the tendency is to kind of uh, to talk from a very distant perspective in terms of historical processes and shoguns and all, all this kind of stuff. But you know, like what you know, what was he actually doing every day? You know, what did he have to chant, for instance, each day? Or what did he chant? How much time did he spend reading and studying? Um, uh, you know, did, what kind of? Uh, I guess he must have had some kind of ink pen and things like that. But all of these things, you know, it's, they're not areas that are. I guess it's it's touching on the area of material culture in part, but it, it's it's a very different kind of history than than the history of like you know sects and emperors and uh, all that kind of
1: thing. I, I wonder. Um, I've a question though, along those same lines that I've wondered is. Clearly, when he was a monk, when he when he was um, before he became a kind of lay uh, when he got married and became a lay practitioner. In the days when he was studying at, in the Tendai tradition, um, he obviously studied widely because that's what one does in that tradition. I mean, the whole point of it is to become familiar with, if not to gain full mastery of the pretty much the entirety of Buddhist literature, as it was known as, as it had come down to them in Chinese translations. But eventually, I mean, when we get to the point of reading some of the things that we've been reading in the collected works of Shinran, he seems to have a fairly, um, a, a fairly small corpus of texts that he quotes. Yeah, I,
0: I wanted to do the the act of or work out exactly how many he cites from, and I'm not sure how many. It seems to me quite a lot, but to, but you you think it's relatively few. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe it, maybe it's twenty to thirty or something could be. Um, right, I guess that's not a huge number. Yeah,
1: I I wonder whether he deliberately whether he just stopped studying those other things. I mean, there, there must have been a time in his life when he studied the uh, Huayan literature, for example. And um, there must have been a time when he, you know, he, when he was very familiar with the, the Lotus Sutra, and the Lankavatara Sutra, and the Vimalakirti Nirdesha, and all of, the, all of those texts, which were very important in, in um, the Tendai tradition and continue to be important in the, in the Zen tradition. Uh, he doesn't seem to refer to any of those texts. Mm. That's well,
0: interesting. So I guess the question behind what I'm hearing you say is why did he decide uh, to focus on this particular corpus of texts that he uses uh, to quote from and not others that he would have been familiar with um, or he, right. he must have been familiar with?
1: Right. And and, and, I, and I wonder whether whether that represents um his own uh, as it were culling of his library so that he you know that he he only studied the, those texts of the pure land that were pretty obviously connected with the pure land tradition but one thing that is interesting is is the importance of the of the um the doctrine of Mapo which I don't think does that come up in, in the Sukhavati Vyuha? I associate that more with you know the nirvana sutra and the lotus sutra where you have this doctrine of the degeneration the, the living in the degenerate age um
0: yeah i can't answer that question without checking uh, i know that it does come up in the lotus sutra doesn't it as well because that's where yeah. that's when that's Nichiren's source uh for right. it uh right. but whether it's explicitly mentioned in the in the larger sutra i'd, I'd have to check that um yeah yeah, um, but going back to what you're saying about his selection of texts, um, I wonder whether it was informed by his reading of the Senchakushu. Um, uh, I mean, I've not um, seen a detailed comparison between this, the scriptural sources of the Senchakushu and, uh, and Shinran, but obviously uh, Shinran tells us that he copied uh, Honan's uh, Senchakushu and he had that to hand and yeah. uh, and really is following uh, a model um well ex- the exact same model that honen uh has uh, uh has followed which is you know basically gathering together a series of scriptural sources with a bit of connecting material to justify a certain point of view and uh that there, there there is certainly quite a bit of overlap in textual sources but how far that goes i i don't know I'd probably take quite a while to to work through that and and determine the answer
1: yeah there in in volume two there is there is this um section called names and titles cited which has the names of people like a Shatru and so forth but it also has the names of texts that are referred to and um so that 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 might be a a way to get at least a, a some some sense of which texts he uh, he cites, and there, I mean, there are there are there are a, a number of things that he that he's obviously familiar with. Yeah, hmm. in right. that particular glossary, I don't know how many texts he actually refers to because there is there there there, there is no indication in this list of texts. For example, it mentions the Abhidharma Kosha, um, the Kusharon. And a, a comprehensive treatise on Hinayana doctrines written by Vasubandhu and translated into Chinese by Xuanzang, but it doesn't say whether or where that's referred to by um, Shinran. So I, I'm assuming that Shin, that it probably wouldn't be in this in this list.
0: Right. In in a number of cases, they it does give the uh, reference to where it appears. Um
1: right um, yeah, and there's a there's an index oh I, i'm sorry you yeah, know the the uh, names and titles cited, cited there's a little paragraph that says the following is a is a list of the proper names and titles of works that appear in teaching practice and realization so all of these texts are referred to in that He doesn't in this particular glossary give us um in some of them, he yeah. Does.
0: I think look, if you look at, for instance, Abhidharma Kosha, uh, and it has in bold below Shinjin 123.
1: Yeah, Shinjin uh, so, one, so I
0: think that's referring to where you find it. Um, so right. it's in the chapter on Shinjin, uh, right. sec- section 123, I think.
1: Right, and practice 13, and yeah. practice. Okay, yeah, right. that's right.
0: But in looking at those, there might be more than 30 texts there. There's quite a few. Um, There's
1: quite a few. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this, this includes a lot of proper names of, right. of people. That's true. But the, um,
0: the other thing I was thinking about is selection of texts is, well, if, if we think about the people who we decided um, uh, were the patriarchs of Pure Land Buddhism, well, we've got Honen and we've got Genshin and we've got Shandao. Mm. And I think that so uh, he uh, he would have been very attentive to the text that they cite uh, as well and using those as a kind of reference point, if you like, for, for which texts were, were important ones or relevant ones. Right. Yeah. And
1: That's
0: right. Yeah. The, um, yeah. Another thing that I've been, uh, well, I've been trying to write about this week that I thought I'd tell you about, um, which we may not have talked about before, is the concept of the turning through the three vows. Uh, maybe we d- did talk a bit about that um, mm. before. Um, but uh, so, Shinran uh, presents this idea, yet it's actually based on his own transformation, if you like. But he presents this idea that there are different uh, stages of presentation of the, of, the, of the path of other power. Uh, and they're reflected in uh, different different vows. So the nineteenth vow, uh, which is the first one, uh, he reads as being um, expressing the idea of basically of self-power, uh, the the path of sages that you you strive and strive uh, through your own efforts, and uh, if you practice according to that vow, um, the best you can do is to be born into what's called the land of indolence uh, mm. in the pure land. And depending on what you read, uh, you may be there for some time uh, before you then can be fully reborn in the, in the pure land. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the first one. And then you've got the 20th vow, which my reading of it is, is what uh, Shinran refers to as self-power within other power. So you, you, you focus on, uh, Amida, you focus on Nimbutsu, but you, you do it in a self power way, thinking that through doing it, you're building up merit mm-hmm. and particularly you're building up merit that you can then transfer, uh, to the pure land. Um, uh, and if you get reborn in, uh, according to that logic, um, again, your your sort of full enlightenment is delayed um uh, uh i think you have to wait for 500 years in a palace somewhere which doesn't mm. sound too bad but uh, either he, 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 you know that's what the the i was reading this in the largest sutra this morning that you you're 500 years in a palace enjoying yourself and that's apparently seen as a bad thing uh but the point is that that during those 500 years you don't see the buddha or you don't hear the dharma um mm. so that's the downside Mm-hmm. and then you get to the uh, the 18th vow which uh shinran decides is the most important the primal vow and his reading of that vow is that yeah you 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 recite the ninbutsu uh, or the nimbutsu is recited uh, but both practice and shinjin are gifted uh, so none of the practice is yours in other words um, uh, you, you receive the practice instead of uh, cultivating it or doing it and that is the um the the the, the true um a true way uh to be re- reborn in the pure land so he has this idea of a kind of sequence if you like of uh, of, uh transformation uh, uh it, towards a complete acceptance um of other power and i didn't notice this first time around but then i started to see that the final chapter of the, the Kyogyo Shinsho is all about that. It describes that process. Um, so he, dis- he he has lots of quotations relating to each of those three vows and mm. presenting his his own viewpoint about well, the, the true Dharma gate being uh, the 18th vow. So it, it, there is quite a lot of um, focus on it, um, mm-hmm. quite a lot of argumentation around it. Uh, but it, equally, it, it's, I've not found it easy to get my head round because some of the things that he says are quite are quite confusing as well. Um, because on the one hand, he says that, well, through we, or the sutras say, that on, on the base of each of those vows, you will be reborn in the pure land. But at the same time, he really downgrades the first two and says, you know, they're, they're basically no good. And, and you've mm. got to... Uh, adopt the the 18th vow Uh, and i wondered and maybe you know the answer to this is uh, what caused him to settle on the 18th vow as the key one does that come from shandao or is that honen it probably comes from shandao but i need to check i I need to check that but it's like you've got these 48 vows in this text and they focus on this one um uh and that seems interesting, and how, how that came about, how they ended up doing that, I don't really know.
1: Yeah, my impression, but I but I I don't I don't I can't I can't back this up. It's just an impression that I've I've developed over the years. Is that that was in in a way focusing on the 18th vow was kind of what differentiated the Pure Land school from other schools of Buddhism, and that it that it happened it happened early on um right um so maybe you know, the, with, you know yeah shandao or maybe where where does he come in the list of patriarchs
0: shandao um he comes i think it's after dao cho i think so yeah god there's so much to know isn't there
1: mm-hmm. did you happen to read the uh the section in chapter um, sorry in volume two that deals with all these letters?
0: Uh I don't think I have finished it. You mean that the letters from today that, that we were going to look at today?
1: Yeah, I I, I just um after f- finishing reading all of the all of the letters that we had for today, I, I just went back in in volume two and read, you know, the section called Introduction to the Letters on page 156 over to 165 or so um yeah there's and yeah it's about about nine nine pages of introduction to the letters in general and and i found it i found it really helpful in putting some of these letters in in the context especially the letters from that we were reading today um were a little bit a little bit shocking i mean you know he Disinherits yeah. his son, yeah. for example, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, and, and he's he's he continues doing something that we saw in previous letters of really firmly de, de, uh, denouncing um, people from from the Kanto region who are um, teaching what 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 this theme of licensed evil. You know that 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 once once you have Shijin, then and you can um you can do what you what you want or that even going a step further and um breaking precepts precisely to demonstrate your faith yeah um, mm-hmm. and and it and it's what what's what what becomes clear in the in the is there's a little bit of a sort of a narrative in the introduction to the letters that that was kind of the uh, the Achilles heel of the of the uh, Nembutsu approach is is that if that's all you do, if, if all you do is, is have, you know, recite the Nembutsu with, with conviction, then attention to the precepts at best becomes kind of neglected. There just isn't very much, I mean, what one, one, one view was that there just aren't any precepts within, within pure land, you know, they're just, they're just, they're just absent. And the other one is that there's a kind of proactive breaking of the, of the precepts. And, th- and that happened very early on, at least in Japan. Mm. And it was because of that, that Honan and Shinran were, were both exiled. And um, and it was a continuation. When Shinran came out of exile, he went to uh, uh, Hitachi in, in the north of uh, Tokyo, And and, um, according to this, he had a following, the estimate of about 10,000 people. Well, that's a a big following in those days. I mean, we're talking Billy Graham. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 10,000 followers. And then after he left, a lot of those followers began vying for, um, well, you know, trying to establish themselves as as authorities and as Mm -hmm. teachers. And there came to be a a, a fairly active um, teaching, you know, uh, strain of these licensed evil people. And Shinran from Kyoto sent his son to straighten them out. And his son was unable to do that. And eventually, in order to sort of gain authority himself, he said that he had received secret teachings from his father, and 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 that's eventually what led um, Shinran to disinherit his son, which seems to have been a very must have been a very painful thing for him to do. I mean, given how how very important um, family is in the context of East Asian cultures, disinheriting your son is really, I, I mean. Very big step.
0: Yeah. And I don't know if you remember, there's a letter as well where Shinran is ticking off his son for saying bad things about his mother. Um, Yes. uh, And
1: uh, Uh, referring uh, to her her as as his mother in law. Right. Stepmother. Stepmother. Yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting these letters um, because. Although I think, you know, as you said, they do draw out the uh, the theme about licensed evil. In these letters, there seem seems to be a lot less kind of doctrinal material, and it's kind of a lot more like basic, trying to deal like firefighting, really. And uh, there's quite it seems like there's quite a lot of firefighting in these letters. And you know, Shinran receiving this very alarming news from somewhere that somebody's teaching something crazy. Uh, and he's really not happy with. And in a lot of the letters, he's, he's having to, you know, use words like deplorable and, and this kind of thing, uh, right. really to, to try and make it clear that people are going off track. And you kind of, you know, you find yourself wondering, so there's this guy in Kyoto in his 70s and 80s now, probably, right? Um, and he's founded this movement that is in Kanto, uh, and all of the people are over there, and his only contact with them is via letters and occasional visits. And he was re- he's receiving all this really alarming news that people are really seemingly distorting his teaching, getting into trouble with the authorities, and so on. And you know how must he have felt about that? It, it can't have been comfortable at all.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, given given that these are these are letters, also I, I couldn't help. Wondering how long would it take to get a, a letter from Tokyo to Kyoto yeah, yeah. in those days yeah um,
0: several days you'd think probably wouldn't it
1: yeah I don't even know how it would get there I mean would some somebody walk or would they
0: that that was one of the things I was wondering about how they actually traveled around um yeah. at that time, and I immediately thought of horses, but then I thought, well probably not um. Uh, some of the samurai would have had horses, wouldn't they?
1: Um, right, and, and but, I think horse, horses were, were used. There, there were horse drawn carts, or or maybe even rickshaws. I mean, I don't you know. You know, okay. hu, human drawn carts, but oh. um,
0: but it's a fair way, isn't it, from Kyoto to Kanto?
1: Yeah, it is. It's yeah, it's a, it's a it's a good distance.
0: They did not have the bullet train.
1: They did not. No, it, it, it that didn't come in until um, Nichiren's time. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there was. I don't even know how many. You know how how good the roads were. I mean, I I have no idea what what travel would, would have been like and during the Kamakura period.
0: Yeah. I, a while ago, I found myself wondering. You know, when Shinran got exiled uh, and he was exiled to this fishing region in the, uh, Northwest somewhere, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, was I found myself thinking, so when he got exiled, how did he get to his place of exile? Did he have to walk? Cause I, I, I looked it up on Google and it's about 650 kilometers, mm. uh, away. Uh, so that in, in uh, oh yeah, you don't understand kilometers, do you? So what's that? Uh, 400, 450 miles. Mm-hmm. So that's a long way. Uh-huh. yeah,
1: yeah six hundred fifty you know kilometers would be that'd be a, a good you know, a good distance um I mean, know, be, if,
0: if he'd walked it'd have taken
1: weeks yeah that's right um yeah I, I don't know how how long um i mean i don't i don't know what the conditions of exile were did they just say okay now go to that fishing village or did they was he escorted by a uh, yeah, I,
0: I had that question as well, and uh, yeah, I don't I mean, think I don't think we've got that information.
1: Yeah, it might have been put into a paddy wagon or something, and and, and taken there. I mean, they they might have actually transported in there mm. under under a, a guard. Wow. Maybe. Um, I yeah. I mean, I just don't know.
0: Mm.
1: What you know was exile on the honor system. <laughs> I have no idea.
0: Yeah. Um anyway coming back to the main thing that you were saying which uh interests me uh, was really this question about ethics i guess and uh, uh it seems like maybe you're raising um what might be an essential flaw in the uh, in shinran's teaching that it, it would seem to tend in the direction of not taking care of ethics
1: yeah and and, and i th- i think given given that this was this was, according to the, according to the story that's told in the uh, in the introduction to the letters, it was it was actually a problem that Honan struggled with too, and it's why he was exiled because some of his fault. Follow- I mean, so so I think I think it's it's something that was perceived not only by monks from the Tendai tradition but also by civil authorities because he talks several times about, you know, that there's these three terms that he uses um, to refer to kind of civil authorities, the secular state. And um, they seem to have been very concerned about the conduct of, you know, that, that it was seen as some, the, the teaching of the Nembutsu or the people who were associated with Nembutsu were seen as in some ways kind of destabilizing the state. Mm. you know the, the, the there was there was a concern i think that it, it may have been not only the um the buddhist precepts but things like confucian principles um you know the, the 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 sort of glue of civil society was seen as being compromised by this potentially and in some cases actively antinomian right uh, Quality of nimbutsu followers.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the topics that comes out in these letters is about respect to gods uh, as well, um, and uh, it seems that Shinran is is discouraging people from being disrespectful uh, to gods. So I don't know whether that's the karma or or something else. Uh, I mean, I'd understood that Shinran basically rejects kami worship but maybe what he's uh, talking about is not being disparaging Uh, i'm actually reading a letter here and he Mm -hmm. says even the gods and deities do not abandon us hence as for the buddhas and bodhisattvas how could we speak disparagingly or think slightingly of them right um so he he, uh, and i know that the the state in general was quite aligned with uh, you know kami worship, I guess is protector, protectors of the nation like that, and so if the people of Shin, uh, Shinjin or the Nimbutsu followers were rejecting the worship of the the sort of national deities or what you might say, uh, that could be seen as very subversive
1: and mm-hmm. uh, yeah 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 and, and um Well, when people write about Shinto these days, they usually just make a distinction between the um, the There One aspect of Shinto that, I mean, actually, I actually really liked Shinto a lot when I was living in Japan Um, because the the shrines, the sort of ordinary shrines are always built in... um, There's a book called there's a book called the, um, the Katalpa bow and um, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a, by Carmen Blacker. It's really an extremely good insight in, into the, into Shinto, but she, she, um, she, she uh, says that, she, that, Shin, that a Kami is a window. It's kind of like a window onto the, um, well, the transcendental realm and that, the characteristics of a window into the transcendental realm is anything that makes you stop and 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 uh and sigh or or just be transfixed by, by something for a moment. So, you know, waterfalls are a really old um gnarled tree that's been that's been around for six or seven hundred years.
0: Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. When I went to Japan, I don't know whether I told you this, I did, uh, a, um, a, a, a Canon pilgrimage, um, uh, around 33 temples, uh, mostly oh, yeah. in, the, in the Kansai region. Oh. Uh, but one of the most remote ones, uh, I, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it basically involved going up quite a high mountain. Right. Uh, and it was next to this massive waterfall. Um, and uh, with most of them as well, there was uh, a Shinto shrine, mm-hmm. uh, and then there was the the Buddhist temple very close by. That uh, they were often uh, there together. But mm-hmm. I particularly remember that one because the the waterfall was quite uh, spectacular. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. and there, there's always something really quite serene, very, very, just something that really settles a person down. I think in a in a Shinto shinto setting it's a very simple um simple i mean almost almost at least in 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 some ways free of any kind of doctrine in a, in a way it's just an appreciation of the beauty of waterfalls and trees and natural natural phenomena that mm. make you stop and admire them um and you know the practice of just purifying yourself and washing up washing your your hands and and um and um and then going in and ringing a bell and clapping your hands twice and bowing that's all there is to it but it's it's just such a a, a very a peaceful practice mm. and um but but in addition to that that kind of shinto there's there's the the national shinto and i think that that, that is something that incorporates within it a lot of Confucian elements, um, you know, f- things that are directed towards keeping stability within a society, and especially within a within a kingdom or with you know within a within a a government. So that has a lot more to do with duty and responsibility toward toward the state and things like that. And and I don't I I'm assuming that that was in place during the Kamakura period.
0: I think that's right because um uh one of the reasons why Honen was banished in the first place is because he was preaching that people shouldn't worship the kami uh, or at least that was the charge um oh. and, and that charge was actually brought by other monks uh by uh uh can uh, the the kind of more established uh monks you know um mm-hmm well, he was an established monk, but by the the established order, um, they were uh, bringing that charge to him. So there was, I think, quite a close alliance. Well, there was was an alliance, first of all, between the nation and certain national gods, if you like. But also then the Sangha was expected to sort of buy into that, if you like, and to to participate in that or incorporate that as well. And it would seem that Honen rejected that and i think it's also i think also shinran rejected that although in these letters he seems to be backpedaling um uh i guess he's probably quite concerned about what's happening and maybe it's people kind of deliberately flouting authority and things like that causing problems
1: right i i i I would it seems to be another another one of those um fine lines that he had had to walk because um you know, in traditional Shinto, um, there there is always an element of um, making an offering, <clears throat> offering a prayer for something like your own prosperity, or you know, if you're if you're experiencing um, any kind of difficulty in life, you go to a Shinto temple and and uh, and you know, as it were, kind of propitiate the, the kami, and and uh, and so there. I mean, that is thoroughly self. So self-powered kind of behavior. Um, so he would not be in favor of that at all. But if one goes one step beyond just not doing that and actually disparaging people who do that or warning people against doing that, teaching your kids not to do that, for example, then you're really running, you're, you're likely to be running into, into, into a conflict with the authorities.
0: Yeah, it would be interesting to know more, wouldn't it? Uh, in, yeah. in what consisted, uh, what in what what this conflict consisted, if you like. Um,
1: right.
0: uh, what what were they actually doing? Uh, the these people, uh, these us. followers. Um, I'm looking at one of the letters uh, that uh, we had for today, which is the the fourth one, mm-hmm. and it's kind of touching on this issue about people consciously doing things wrong, you know, and we talked about this before, but he seems to be uh, emphasizing it here as well. So on on page 564, he says, it is not stated in the Pure Land teachings that because it is for the evil person, one should purposely think what is wrong in one's mind, act it bodily or speak it verbally. Hence, I have never said such things to people. You should understand that while your existence is one of one possessed of blind passions and it is difficult for you to still your mind you will unfailingly attain birth it is this that in general the masters and true teachers have taught it is not at all taught that you should perform acts that become hindrances to people of the nimbutsu, and bring censure on the masters and true teachers intentionally preferring wrong because the self is so evil right so he's he's kind of uh, treading a fine line there, isn't he? Between, I guess, not wanting to uh, kind of suggest that ethics is a, a self-power practice, if you like, that through through ethics you then uh, become purified or, or you become born in the pure land, but equally uh, he wants to discourage people from from just um acting unskillfully just just for the sake of it if you like um uh, just because yeah. they can
1: yeah there, there, there there's there's the you know sort of using using the fact that we're sentient beings who are under the influence of the blind passions as a as an excuse and then going a step further and actually i mean let let, let me say more about about using it as an excuse let, Let's say that um, that you speak angrily at someone at a meeting, just just to give an example of something, hypothetical example of something that could happen. <laughs> so, I mean, one one way to, when that's happened, I mean, after it's happened, one way of dealing with that would be to reflect on it and and feel ashamed, you know, and 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 to feel remorse and to make some kind of internal commitment that you will not you'll try your best not not to, to be uh, ambushed by by the blind passions again or you could just say well that's just the way we sentient beings are i mean you know that's just the way it is and 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 kind of uh, sh- shrug it off as as being normal and i'm assuming but maybe it's only an assumption that shinron would really much rather that someone do the former.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think so. And uh, the sense I get as well is that um, something that would be key for him would be to constantly remember, uh, like gratitude, you know, be, be in touch with that and uh, and the fact that uh, you, Shinjin uh, has arisen, if you like. And, and so the way I, I understand it is that uh, gratitude um, is what transforms ethics. Um, so rather than it being a, an ethics of self-justification, uh, it's an ethics of gratitude. And so if people are not following um, an ethical life, uh, mm-hmm. what that means is they're not really sufficiently attentive uh, to what they've received. And I, I think he does say things quite similar to that in in, in some of his letters. Uh, yeah that that somebody who acts evilly just for the sake of it is clearly not aware of this immense gift that they've received from uh from Amida. because i mean why would you you know it's like uh, it doesn't even make any sense so if you think about it so there's this being that has dedicated millions and millions of lifetimes uh to living an incredibly impeccable life an impeccable dharma Mm -hmm. life cultivating bodhicitta assembling this world this which this ideal world which is the 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 fruit of his practice which he he is then saying anyone could be reborn there that's what he's doing and your response to that is say okay thank you so now i'm going to act like an idiot you know i mean it doesn't really make, it doesn't really make very much sense does it?
1: it right
0: really if you if you really um open up to the whole Structure of that that myth and, and what it implies,
1: and we can certainly um, take the evidence of a theme that comes up in many of these letters, especially these latter ones. He's certainly not doesn't hesitate to remonstrate with people mm. when he thinks that they haven't been behaving yeah. well. Yeah, you know, um, and and and, uh, and and you'd think that that would probably extend to um, self remonstration, which isn't necessarily the same as just beating oneself up but i mean just really sitting down and giving oneself a good talking to
0: yeah well i think so i mean there's quite a number of places where he emphasizes or he describes himself as uh you know a, a being of karmic evil and you know if you if you remember in um in the uh tani show there's quite a lot in there about you know he recognizes that he's a being of karmic evil. And for that reason, the vow was made for his benefit. Uh, right. um, so that there, there is a lot of humility there, I think, but but not not a kind of false humility. I think a genuine uh, awareness of of his own human limits, his own mm-hmm. um, uh, his own ethical failings. Um, mm. um, yeah, uh, very sensitive to that although not in a Christian way, it uh, doesn't seem to me. Uh, what I mean by that is not in a way that is very self-punishing, I guess. Uh, maybe not Christians are like that, but there, there is that tendency, I think.
1: Yeah, you know, it, 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 it seems a little bit more in the spirit of something like um, you know Jungian um, being, recog- recognizing one's own shadow. I mean, recognizing, mm. the, um, recognizing that these tendencies never completely go away, but trying, trying to become more aware of them, bring them, bring, bringing them into the light.
0: Well, that's an interesting connection you just made there, because uh, it, it takes you back to this idea about the the sophisticated interiority of uh, Shinran. Because what you're uh, uh, moving towards is the idea that he had a sense of the unconscious. Uh, um, and had a sense that the unconscious can't be controlled if you like uh, uh, and uh, you have to learn to to deal with that
1: yeah i mean there there is a certain similarity between the notion of the unconscious and the the notion of the repository of mm. un mm. unripened karma mm. you know it's 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 always it's it's always there within our mentality even when we're not conscious of it and and um william waldron has has written a book on the alaya vijnana and and the unconscious it's quite a quite a provocative um book and 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 i think there's i think there is something to it that there's it, and it's it's interesting because i've seen it said that uh uh that the discovery of the unconscious, by or the labeling of of, of that by Freud, um, was a step in a direction that it was it was a discovery. It was it was a radically new idea, and um, I'm I'm not I'm not at all convinced that that's yeah, the case. Yeah,
0: but you've even I remember reading about this uh, quite a while back. Even in Pali Buddhism, you've got the idea of the Bhavanga, haven't you? Uh, The sort of uh, which is like an underground stream, uh, and it's uh, uh, it's one of the ways of trying to explain continuity. Um, Right. Yeah, the continuity that we seem to experience. Yeah. Uh, But I I suppose where, where where I was, what interested me is that is this issue about being conscious that it's difficult to perfect your ethics because, in a way, you're not in a sense, in complete control of what, of who you are, of what you are. But as you say, the, the idea of the, um, the Alia seems to touch on that as well, doesn't it? Cause the, mm-hmm. the, the seeds in the Alia, they're not within consciousness, but then they, they sprout. Right. Um, and, uh, and you don't really choose that. I don't think it, it happens. And then you have to deal with it. Right. Which is kind of what happened to me yesterday.
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that there there was another there was a phrase that came up in a couple of letters that really intrigued me and I I looked it up in the uh, in the glossary on volume 2 and that that's this phrase um it's translated as um no working is working
0: oh yeah no working is true working yeah yeah
1: yeah and um I looked up you know the term working And it gives this very, very complicated character (laughs) that's pronounced gi. And, um, and it says the original form of term gi has several connotations. This is on page 218 of volume two, has several connotations, reason, meaning, justification, principle, and so forth. And, um, I've, I, I looked it up in a, in a Japanese English dictionary and, and, uh, gito gi suru he, he, they give this expression mugi wo motte gi gito suru or uh gito su and, and that um that gito su means um to justify something to justify something by um motte means holding on to mugi so so by grasping non justification you justify something or it can even mean by grasping non-righteousness, you do the, you 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 act righteously, um, and and they they've chosen to translate it, no working as true working or no working as working, and that that seems to be, if I understand how that how that phrase is used by Shenran, that no working as on your part, if you if you're not doing anything, then by by pursuing the path of not working yourself then the working of amita takes place is that is that how you understand that yeah
0: de- definitely um that's right yeah so the the no working refers to kind of ego directed effort um mm-hmm. so that that you've got to stop that kind of working because uh, that isn't helping um and if and when you stop that um that enables uh, true working uh which is a meter's, uh mind kind of working through you if you like right. um, yeah uh, but but what's interesting about the phrase uh, is that um, in, all you have to do is stop working <laughs> right so it's not that you have to develop the true work you know the phrase suggests no working is true working so that means that if you stop this ego directed um, effort things kind of then happen by themselves, if you like. It's not that you have to develop a different kind of effort.
1: Right.
0: Um, so it is more like um, stopping doing something rather than doing something new, which is quite an interesting uh, uh, way of thinking about practice. Uh, I I, think I was trying to, I think I was writing a bit about that this week and it's a bit like um, kind of stopping getting in the way or something, uh, or right. to put it in another way, uh, stopping uh, blocking uh, Amida's attempt to help you. Um, right, it it right, sounds right. a bit of a strange way of putting it, but um, yeah. that that's, seems to me what Shinran's trying to say, is that our obsession with our ego-directed effort is actually impeding uh, uh, Amida's attempt to help us, because Amida just wants to be compassionate. That's, that's, he's all about that. You know, he, right, he wants right. to shine down upon us. it's almost like we're kind of resisting that uh through our um our self working through our ego effort so it's a very kind of powerful vision about dharma practice um a very positive vision in the sense that um something wants to happen if you like something wants to reveal itself um but the the obstacle is simply that we're not allowing it to
1: right Uh, you know, all all of this uh, really has caused a lot of reflection uh, uh, about the nature of introversion, which is oh. um, something something that I, wa- I, I once read about. A characteristic of, of an introvert is that an introvert really th- really s- resists being um, being helped by other people and and uh, and the way that I, I you know I can relate to that as you know, when I was in elementary school, uh, you know we were being taught arithmetic uh, or you know and anything that we were being taught, I would get a, I would get really quite irritated with my parents if they tried to help me understand something because I wanted to figure it out by myself. You know? <laughs> you know, I wanted to solve this problem by myself. I didn't want any help and uh and i had a friend with whom i played uh i used to play chess when i was in about, about the fifth grade and um we would sometimes talk about chess strategies and and uh and and um i was always interested to talk to to sort of to discuss uh, a chess opening or something like that but i really hated it when when we would play and he'd say, that's not a very good move. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of say, well, look, let me discover myself that the hazards of, of making this move, you know? just go ahead and beat me, but, <laughs> but don't tell me. And, and, uh, and it's, it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, something I struggle with to this day. I mean, I just, I kind of bristle when somebody, somebody offers, offers help or advice. And, um, uh, I don't know if you have any advice about that <laughs>
0: yeah I, I, well like, it seems like what what you're saying is that Shinran's view may, may be less suited to introverts but but equally I, I think it obviously it raises the question of uh who or what is Amida and in what sense is Amida outside you know an external and that that obviously is quite a crude model uh, right. of what what Amida is talking about and um sure uh I, I more and more have been seeing uh, the, the identity uh, between uh, Shinjin and Buddha nature and Shinjin and Bodhicitta. And I think that the, 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 the difference is that instead of, say, Buddha nature being some sort of abstract thing that, that's maybe an abstract potential that you've got within you or something like that, it's, it's like a personal force, or something—it's a—it's a personal influence, which is a meter within you, uh, and that—that's right. what I think makes it really quite engaging because uh, it makes it something much more uh, alive, I guess. It, yeah, it, yeah, it makes Buddha nature something much more alive and active, rather than something more kind of abstract.
1: Right. Well, that thats that is in fact is—is is how how I see it as, as as well. Something very much along those lines, which is that the introversion resistance to external help is really a resistance to help from other people but um partly because you don't want you don't want there to be any static you just want you just want to be guided by by the uh by the by the inner um amida or the in 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 christian language the inner spirit you know Rather, than rather than to be confused by by noise from the outside, on the topic of, of Shin, Shinjin, there, there's really an extremely helpful small paragraph on page one hundred and sixty-three that you've probably seen. But um, well, actually, if you start on page one hundred and sixty-two of volume two um, when he's talking about the place of this within the main within the context of Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, at the bottom of page 162 Shinran also equates the person of Shinjin to the Tathagatas based upon a verse from the Garland Sutra is that the Huayan? I think
0: it is, yeah
1: in in his hymn of the pure land he states the person who attains Shinjin and joy is taught to be equal to the Tathagatas, great Shinjin is Buddha nature Buddha nature is none other than, than Tathagata and then it says in Shinran's understanding, Buddha nature is neither an abstract concept nor a mere potential. It is a reality of Buddhahood waiting to be fully realized, made possible by Shinjin, whose source is Amita Buddha. Thus here again, the equation between Shinjin, Buddha nature and Tathagata is made. And then you've, you've added into the equation um, Bodhicitta.
0: Yeah, I mean there are other places uh, where um, Shinran does make a direct equation between Shinjin and uh, and Bodhicitta. Uh, there are several mm-hmm. places where where that um, is underlined. Um, yeah, because that I mean that bit refers more to the Bodhicitta bit is when so it talks about um, directing merit towards the Buddha the, towards the Pure Land, but then there's also the aspiration to return as well uh, and help other beings so that's where more explicitly uh, the altruistic dimension comes in.